Our sermon text this morning comes from 1 Samuel chapters 9 and 10. If you'll turn there with me, you can find this in the Pew Bible on page 216. We'll be reading from both of those chapters. Uh, as we did a few weeks ago, I've selected a medley of verses uh, to kind of give you a sense of the story. But uh, I encourage you to have your Bible open the whole time because I'll probably be referring to some verses that I don't read. Uh, although um, the ones that I read, I think, are the ones that help you get the main flow of the story. This is the story of how Saul was selected as the first king, how he was anointed by Samuel, and how he was proclaimed before the whole nation as the king or the prince. And so let's uh, look together, starting in verse 1. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bechorath, son of Aphiah, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul his son, Take one of the young men with you and arise, go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalishah, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Sa'alam, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. And now to verse 15. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel Tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, here is the man of whom I have spoken to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for the donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom... Is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Chapter 10, verse 1. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince? Over his people Israel, and you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has appointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin of Zelzah, and they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found, and now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, What shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three goats 
another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeoth Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come into the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him. And the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore, it became a proverb, is Saul also among the prophets. And now finally to verse 17. Now Samuel called the people of Israel together to the Lord at Mitzpah. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. And when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And the people shouted, Long live the king. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship. And he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each to his own home. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God endures forever. Amen. Isn't it frustrating when someone points something out to you and you can't see it? Have you ever been there? I get in this situation a lot with my wife. Her long distance vision is better than mine. And so she'll say, look at that bird over there, that lizard on the tree. And I I squint and turn my head both ways and try really hard to get my eyes to adjust and I still can't see it or there's that dolphin out there in the water way out there do you see it don't see a dolphin isn't that frustrating 
It's frustrating because when you don't see something that someone else sees, you're unable to enter their enthusiasm over what they see, right? The dolphin that you don't see is to you not a dolphin at all. And so you can't get excited about it. You can't look at it and see the beauty and wonder of it. What if I told you this morning that the way God builds his kingdom is much like that? People can look at the world and look at your life and say, don't you see it? God is at work. Be encouraged. Look at what God is doing. He's doing this. He's doing that. He's doing the other. Wow. And if you're like the vast majority of people, you look and you squint and you try to see God working and for the life of you, you can't see it. This story explains why. I told you a minute ago, Saul is selected as king, Saul is anointed as king, Saul is proclaimed as king. And in each section, what we see is God building his kingdom by a hidden hand. A hand that you can only see if you have the eyes of faith. That is always God's pattern. God loves to work by the hidden hand. How good are you and how good am I at seeing that and recognizing it? So look at your bulletin. We're going to look at the different parts of the story. Uh, There are three things that we see about God's hidden hand. Uh, First of all, we see his providence, which is what his hidden hand is. That's That's a definition of providence, God's hidden hand at work. Then secondly, we see God's power, which shows us why God works through the hidden hand. And then lastly, God's proclamation or how we should respond when we see God's hidden hand, all right? So first of all, let's look at the providence of God. What is the hidden hand of God? If you'll go back to chapter 9, you'll see at the very beginning, uh, this story is a series of seemingly inconsequential and minor events that lead to major outcomes, uh, one writer puts it this way. Actually, it's a, it's a lot of writers who say this. This is a very common way to d- describe the story. Saul left home looking for donkeys, and he found a kingdom. That's what was going on there in chapter 9. Saul left home looking for donkeys, and he found a kingdom. That's a big deal. Little events led to a big consequence by some unseen hand at work. It tells us in verses 1 to 3 that Saul is a wealthy young man. He's a part of a wealthy family, but he's a part of a very tiny part of Israel called Benjamin. This was the smallest tribe, and their tribal lands were very small in area, and they didn't have any big cities. It was mostly countryside and hills and farms. And so when it says that, uh, you know, Saul's family were people of standing or of wealth, you got to kind of take it with a grain of salt. Uh, They were local rich people, but they probably were not well known throughout the whole nation. An unimportant family, relatively speaking. And on that day, this handsome young man, it tells us uh, who is the fairest of them all. Saul, right? That's basically what it says. In all the kingdom, there is no one more handsome than he. Wow, he fits the picture of a king. He's head and shoulders above everybody else. He's tall. Wow. And yet on this day, he's given a very mundane task to do. 
The servant comes in and says, hey, Saul, dad's got a job for you. You ready? The donkeys are missing. Why don't you get out there and find the missing donkeys? Now, has anybody ever lost a donkey before? Probably not. Um, Not sure how easy it is to find missing donkeys. According to this story, it doesn't seem very easy. But they're very motivated to do it. you got to remember, this was a time when donkeys were more than just pets. Uh, Donkeys were real tools. Um, It it could carry things. It could carry people. It could help you on the farm. Uh, It would be a little bit like waking up in the morning and realizing your car is missing from the driveway (laughs) or your truck is not in the garage. Uh, What would you do? You'd send the team out. You'd, You'd call the police. You'd send them out. Go find my missing car and... We would all agree that it wouldn't be an easy task to find it because a missing car usually means what? Stolen. That's not, it's dangerous to find a missing car because it's probably in the hands of a thief. Same with the donkeys. And so here goes Saul and this servant. They go from one town to the other throughout the countryside. They go to one no-name place after the other. And you can imagine how mundane it is. They, they go up to people and say, hey, have you seen my donkeys? Well, what are your donkeys like? <laughs> They're gray, right? Oh, that narrows it down. Now tell me more. Well, this one's cantankerous. This one, you know, neighs a lot. This, you know, all that kind of stuff. They're describing the minutia of donkeys, And every time they describe it, it says, for three whole days, everybody returns the same answer. I have not seen your daddy's donkeys. (laughs) Wow. What a seemingly insignificant chain of events. And yet, did you notice? There was a lot of just so happens. I love just so happens. You know what I'm talking about? It just so happened that this servant decided, hey, why don't we go talk to the man of God? Why don't we go ask Samuel where these donkeys are? Okay, let's go do it. It just so happened they met young women drawing water at the well who knew exactly where Samuel was. It just so happened when they got to that place, Samuel was coming down the hill at that very moment. And it just so happened... That God the day before had told Samuel to expect Saul's arrival. Wow. Seemingly insignificant events were not so insignificant after all. Why? Because there was, and I want to tell you this morning, there is. There is. The unseen, hidden hand of God preserving and governing all creatures at all times behind every event. There are no accidents. There are no just-so-happens. There is no such thing as chance or luck. There is only providence, which is the looking ahead of God to see the needs And the work of God to meet the needs that he's always seen. Look again at verses 15 through 17. This is where God came to Saul, or excuse me, to Samuel to describe what was going on behind the scenes. He says, tomorrow about this time, chance will send you. Is that what it says? 
Look at it, verse 16 of chapter 9. Tomorrow about this time, you'll get lucky and you'll see somebody that just so happens to be crossing your path. No. It just so happens. Look, tomorrow about this time, I will send you a man. That man is chosen by me. He will rule my people and actually save them. You see, God is using even their request for a king for their good. Saul is going to save them from the Philistines. That's a good thing. It says God did it because he saw his people. I'm reading from verse 16 still. I have seen my people because their cry has come up to me. There it is, providence. God saw what was needed. And all along, even in inconsequential events, God was working to bring about the solution to what was needed for the sake of his people because he loves them and sees them. Providence. Isn't that beautiful? A hidden hand behind everything in life. When I was a kid, there was a show on TV that I loved. It was called Secrets of Magic Revealed. If you're around my age, you may remember it. There was this guy with the mask on. Yes, yes the, the dark, like kind of black mask. And for the first half of the show, he would do this amazing magic trick, this illusion. Like big things, like he would make a school bus disappear. Or a group of 30 people would just vanish. And you watched it and you were like, wow, how did that happen? And then there was a commercial break. And then it came back and it showed you, he walked you through how he did it. Now, every single time, I like to, in the first half, think, okay, how's he doing it? I tried to figure it out. How many times do you think I guessed it right? Zero times. I tried really hard. I was like, maybe he's doing this, maybe he's doing that, maybe he has some secret, like, you know, trap door. And and every time we would get to it, and he did it in a way that I never would have guessed at, even though I was watching it the whole time. You can be watching. Now, I'm not saying, of course, God is a magician or an illusionist because he's not. Uh, God has something much more than magic. He has his own infinite, eternal, and unchangeable power. It's just completely incomparable. And yet, like an illusionist, God does often choose to work through little things that when you look at it at first, you think there's nothing there. God's nowhere near it. And yet, when God opens your eyes, right, when he reveals to you, and when you by faith lay hold of his promises, you begin to see God is working along the way. Now, this has always been hard to believe. So if you're having a hard time this morning, you're in fairly good company. Human beings have struggled to believe in providence forever. And here's one of the main reasons why. When bad things happen. Uh, In those times, it's really hard to say, wow, God was behind that. It's hard for us to understand that. But Scripture is clear. God is behind it. Now, it tells us God is never the author of evil, never creates it, never makes it happen, and he's never the approver of evil ever. He's always against it, perfectly just. And yet, here's what the Bible says. It's good news. When evil happens, God has not lost control. He has the whole world in his hands. And even the evil acts of evil men and devils, 
God somehow, by his infinite wisdom, works them for his plan and good. Now that stretches the human mind. I I get it. It even stretches the human heart. But it is such an important thing for us to remember. And it makes perfect sense, really, when you think about who God is. He created everything. Nothing would exist without him. So does he not have the ability to work through everything? To where even the devil is unwillingly working out God's purposes? As Martin Luther said, the devil is God's devil. I like that. The devil is God's devil. God doesn't approve of what he does, not even by a long shot. God will judge the devil. But for now, the devil is God's devil. He's on a leash. God is using even the devil to bring about his greater and better purpose. Now think about this. In our modern world, we don't like this idea, and we think this idea almost sounds like a fairy tale because we've convinced ourselves that only the seen things are the real things. But I want to show you for just a minute how that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Imagine that the whole universe is a two-story house, okay? Y'all with me? It's a two-story house. The upper story is called Creator. The lower story is called creature or created. Uh, Who gets to live on the upper story? There's only one. There's one inhabitant of creator. There's only one creator, the Lord God. No one compares. What, What is on the lower story? Literally everything else. If it's not God, it's down there. If it's God, it's up here. Now, here's what we've done in the modern world. We can look at, see, measure, test everything on the lower story because it's all based on senses. And we think uh, the only things we can know are the things that we can know by our senses. And so we test and we study and we learn and our knowledge grows and we get all proud and arrogant until the point that we begin to say, because we've looked everywhere on the lower story and we've found God nowhere, that there can't be a God up there. Here's why that's illogical. Imagine you lost a diamond ring in your house and you searched the entire first floor and couldn't find it. Would you then conclude it can't be on the top story? Would anybody do that? That's what we've done. Like the Russian cosmonauts who in the 50s sent people into space and just like we did. And famously, the cosmonauts came back from their first trip and said, we've, we, we have an announcement to make. We've been to space, and we've seen God nowhere. There is no God. We've been up there. We looked. We couldn't find him. No God. And, of course, how did the whole world respond to that? At the time, everybody was like, that is the worst thing I've ever heard. <laughs> that, clearly, that's Soviet propaganda. We, we knew that at the time. Today, it's funny how much that mentality has spread to all of us. We can't measure God. We can't see him. We can't touch him. Therefore, well, he must not be real. The diamond ring's not on the bottom floor, so it can't be on the top floor. In fact, there may not even be a top floor. (laughs) Don't even worry about that staircase there. It's just an illusion. There's no top floor. Lack of faith in providence is actually irrational. And illogical. How could 
a world of created things even come to be without something outside of itself to make it be? I don't know. Last time I checked, when you got nothing, what are you going to have next? Nothing. Nothing comes of nothing. There's got to be something for there to be something. And the Lord God is that eternal something, that eternal someone who has had the sourcing everything on the lower story. And the things that we see on the lower story ought to draw our mind up to the upper floor and think, what sort of God must this be that created these things that is orchestrating our lives? The hand of God's providence. Now, secondly, let's look at God's power, which is why God tends to use a hidden hand. Look at, ver- look at chapter 10. God tends to use a hidden hand because it shows his power better than any other way. It shows the glory of his power better than any other way. Listen to what one of the Puritans said. This is Stephen Charnock, a great Puritan. He said, God delights in baffling human pride. God delights in baffling human pride. He's not just making that up. Psalm 2 says that when people try to ignore God on earth, what does God do? Psalm 2 says God sits in heaven and laughs. He, he treats them with scorn. He treats, them, he treats us as we are. We're being very, very irrational and illogical. God loves to delight. He delights in baffling pride and bringing it down. He wants us to know that things don't depend on our imaginations or our ability to figure them out. Things depend on God's ability to work, His Spirit, His power. That's why in chapter 10, Samuel took a flask of oil And poured it on Saul's head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord made you king or prince? Has not the Lord done it? It's not you, Saul. It's God. In fact, the whole idea of anointing was a symbol of God's greater power being put onto someone so that they could then go out differently equipped to do what God called them to do. Kings were anointed, priests were anointed, prophets were anointed. Saul is anointed here. Oil was poured on the head. It was a symbol of the Holy Spirit coming down and God filling that person with power. This is the reason why after Saul is anointed, he goes through all these little steps. He finds two men who then then finds three men. They give him the bread and then he he finds the, the tree that he's supposed to go by. And down the hill come the prophets and Saul starts to prophesy. There they are with their musical instruments, singing, singing hymns and songs. And there the prophets are preaching the gospel. And all of a sudden, Saul phew, starts preaching. And everybody who knew Saul was absolutely shocked by what they saw. What has come over the son of Kish? It's a sad commentary on Saul that when he appeared to be a man of God, people thought that can't be right. And this is going to be, this is kind of a dark foreshadowing of what's to come. Is Saul also among the prophets? Uh, That became like like a cliche in Israel for many years. And it was a way of saying, did that really just happen? 
Is Saul also among the prophets? It's kind of like when pigs fly. (laughs) Is Saul also among the prophets? And yet for that one hour, Saul was among the prophets. He appeared to be a man of God. God rushed upon him. Why? To prove that it was by God's strength, God's power, his hidden hand, that a person's equipped. That a person is called. That someone has a job to do and the ability to do it. In fact, I love uh, verse 1. If you'll look at it again of chapter 10. God says, um, I've made you prince over my people Israel. And then at the end of verse 1, you are anointed today to be prince over my heritage. Uh, In this story, God refuses to use the K word. He will not call Saul king. He calls David king, he calls Solomon king, but he will not call Saul king. It's just prince. Again, underlying the fact that Saul is underneath God's authority. A prince is someone sent by the king. A vassal, a representative of the king. That's what Saul is. He's not a king, he's a prince. He's God's vassal, anointed by God to care for his heritage. Did you see that word? God calls his people his heritage. Wow, what a beautiful description of God's love and care. A heritage is something you receive with care and you guard and pass on with care. God, of course, did not receive us from anybody else, but he always had us. And yet heritage is a good way to describe it because God cherishes his people. And he had appointed Saul under his greater authority and he had equipped him to be what it took to help his people. Now, I want you to think really quick about your life. Does anybody in here feel aimless in your calling? Does anybody in here feel inadequate to do what God has called you to do, the tasks that he's given you? Does anybody in here feel empty and unsatisfied in what God has called you to do? Could it be, maybe possible, that the reason why you are those things is because you, in the back of your mind and heart, are living as if your life depended on you? I was in a long meeting yesterday, very long church meeting. And y'all know how long meetings are, right? At first, everybody's really energetic, we're discussing things, we're carefully voting and really taking our time. What happens by the end of the meeting after lunch? Everybody's nodding off, everybody's just yelling out, yay, 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 whatever, you know, do whatever you want to do, let's just go home. (laughs) Nobody's discussing anything, just trying to get to the end of the meeting. It shouldn't be that way, but it's human nature. In fact, there's a word for this, it's called decision fatigue. When you have to make a bunch of decisions in a row in your life or in a meeting, you just start to get weary of making decisions. It's why when you get home from work, you don't want to pick where you go to dinner. You want her to pick or him to pick, right? Because you're just wore out from picking. Maybe when I feel aimless or inadequate or empty about what God has called me to do, maybe it's because I've been trying to take decisions into my hands that don't belong in my hands. The scriptures tell us wherever we find ourselves and whatever calling we find ourselves, God has put us there. 
That does not mean you can't ever have a change, because sometimes God gives you a change. But make no mistake about it, it's God who gives you the change, not your anxiety and hand-wringing. When we get into positions, we often think, if it's going to be, it's up to me. And so we put all the pressure on to do a good job and to perform. And then we feel empty if we feel like we haven't performed our standards. And what we're doing there is we're failing to recognize that God's anointing is what makes a person able to do their job. And it's God's power that makes that work work and gives you the ultimate satisfaction that your work is worth it. It's the Lord. Notice how kind God is being to Saul. Saul is not, we would not call him a believer today. And yet God is carefully trying to teach Saul and to teach us that every job we have is an appointment for which we are equipped by God's power for the purposes of God's love for his people to be expressed. Therefore, there's never a reason for a Christian to be aimless, to feel inadequate, or to feel empty. Because God has filled you. All right, we got to move on to the third thing, which is God's proclamation. How should we respond to all this? Well, quickly, let's go to chapter uh, 10, verse 17. The Lord is now ready to appoint Saul as the king, so he calls this meeting, a Samuel calls together, it says, a congregation at Mitzpah. Mitzpah was the town in chapter 7 where God's people had the revival under Samuel. This was a special place of spiritual depth. And Samuel brought the people back there and began to preach a sermon. Thus says the Lord, he says, verse 18, I brought you out of Egypt, but you have rejected me. But now I'm giving you the king like you asked, and I'm going to be kind to you. I'm going to use the king to bless you. Now everybody come near to God and set yourselves apart, and I'll choose my king. And there they go. The lots are cast, and the, the tribe is picked, the family is picked, and finally Saul's name is called. And Samuel's ready. As soon as Saul comes forward, he's going to proclaim him king, and he's going to preach about the duties of the kingship to the people and to the king himself, write it in a book, and store it up forever. What a ceremony. Well, what a coronation. What's the problem? Who's missing at the coronation worship service? The one who is going to be coronated. They took his name. They called Saul, son of Kish. Saul, son of Kish. Drumroll. Saul, son of Kish. Bueller, you know. He's not there. Where is he at? Hiding amongst the baggage. He didn't even show up to the service of worship where God was going to be personally addressing him about his duties as the first king of Israel. Now, someone might say, well, I understand. You're being hard on Saul. I mean, he was nervous. Well, I'm sure he was. Or you may be saying, well, he was humble. He just didn't want to put himself out there. 
I'm telling you, that's highly unlikely. <laughs> Just come back next week and you'll see why I say that. Saul is not, not a humble man. I think what's more likely is Saul has more regard for his own reputation than he does to hear the revealed words of God about what he should do with his life. And so instead of coming to this very public event where there's the chance that he's going to be proclaimed and then fail, fall flat on his face and be embarrassed in front of the people, remember he had been told since he was a child, Saul, you're the most handsome of them all. You're the tallest, you're the greatest, Saul, Saul, Saul. He didn't want to risk that. And so instead of coming to hear God's word publicly, he stayed at home among the luggage. Saul hides from God among the baggage when he should have hid from the baggage with God. And I hope you get my double meaning and my drift. The baggage of his life, his personal idols, had captured his heart to where it was not a priority in his life to hear what God had to say. Clearly, it wasn't a priority. He didn't show up. When instead, he should have left all those idols behind, all that stuff, all his concerns, and he should have instead come to humbly bow and listen, be all ears to what the Lord God had to say to him. The same is true for us. If you're worried this morning about things that you can't know, can't control, you're hiding among the baggage. Because what you can know is quite plentiful. And you're ignoring what you can know and can do in the interest of what you can't know and can't do anything about. What a misstep on Saul's first day as king. It's going to have many ripple effects throughout his life. And the same thing with us. Many ripple effects happen when we start being more caught in our worries and schemes and plans than we are in the revealed truth of God. What has God told me to do? What has he revealed to me? And let me tell you, there's a beautiful thing he reveals in the Bible that should be a, a medicine to every human heart. Look at verse 22 of chapter uh, 10. The people of Israel ask God a question when they're trying to look for Saul. They ask a question, and I don't think they knew even what they were asking for, but they say this, Is there a man still to come? What a question. In the books of First and Second Samuel, we're going to see the answer is yes. Uh, David is to come. He's a man after God's own heart. God will call him king because he's, he's about his business rather than his own business. And, of course, in the Bible we see there's a greater than David, a man who not only is to come but has come, a king who reigns not for his own selfish interests but who reigns for his heritage the dearly loved people that he is willing to lay down his life to redeem. Actually, the entire Bible is a commentary on that question. Is there a man still to come? 
And the answer that God reveals, he doesn't hide it. This is not a part of his hidden hand. This is a part of his ungloved hand. The answer is yes. The man has come. Jesus Christ, the one in whose hands are all the issues of your life, leave with him the things you can't control and come to him to receive and do the things that you know he wants you to receive and do. Jesus Christ, the one who was born in insignificance to an unwed teenage mother, right? Who was laid in a manger in a stable, who was despised and rejected of men, who, a man of sorrows, a man who didn't even have a place to lay his head half the time, a man whose crown was thorny and bloody. A man whose throne was a cross and he was nailed to it. A man whose coronation took place in a graveyard. What a surprising way for God to work. And yet God worked that way to bring the man to come that all men and all women might know forever you are God's heritage. Your life is in his hands. And you can't always trace his hand, but you can know his heart. You can't always figure out providence. In fact, you can hardly ever figure out providence. But you can know that it is. And that the one behind it treats you like his treasured possession. Is there a man still to come? He has come. And now he invites us to come to him. Amen.